Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Standard Issue podcast. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I thought seahorses were made up until I was in my mid-twenties. Really? Yeah. Don't they seem magical, fantastical creatures? Mythical beings? Yeah. Sure. I'm Jen Offord, and I'm trying not to think too much about what's on the soles of my shoes after Hackney Carnival. <laughs> Coming up in this week's podcast, Mickey takes a trip to Glasgow Women's Library to find out more about this valuable resource for women's history and do a quiz from a Jackie annual. Nice. I chat to Paralympic GBs Sophie Patterson about the charity Path to Success and next weekend's wheelchair basketball tournament. And as award-winning play Foxfinder makes its West End debut, I speak to playwright Dawn King about her new Witchfinder General. I saw that on Friday. It was really, really good. But first, upskirting, pattern fires and disappearing parrots. It's time for The Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to The Bush Telegraph, where we're down to two women. Is that more or less than Boris this week? I can't keep up. (laughs) And it was one small step forward for womankind this week as it was announced that a legal review will take place into whether misogynistic conduct should be treated as a hate crime. The announcement came as Parliament debated whether or not legislation to criminalise upskirting should be passed. And the fact that this was even a subject of debate probably tells you everything you need to know about misogyny among those tasked with policymaking in England and Wales. Because upskirting, who is it good for, as the song didn't quite go? Uh, Well, it's definitely not good for women, is it? I'm looking at you, Sir Christopher, you utter fucking Uh, child. But let's not dwell on that. The good news is MPs did, in fact, ultimately approve the voyeurism bill, which will effectively criminalise upskirting. The Law Commission will now review the treatment of protected sex and gender characteristics within the existing law around hate crime and consider whether new offences are needed to counter that. This comes following a pilot by Nottinghamshire Police, which has been recording misogyny as a hate crime for the past two years, defining misogyny thus... Incidents against women that are motivated by the attitude of men towards women and includes behaviour targeted at women by men simply because they are women. That's (laughs) (laughs) That's catchy. I was going to say, that's pretty smooth, that one. Um, Slightly worrying that examples of this included sexual assault, indecent exposure and taking unwanted photographs on mobiles, all of which are already criminal offences. Still, let's very much take the positives from this that the powers that be actually recognise that this discussion needs to be had. And huge props to Stella Creasy MP, who was the driving force behind a conversation that, in her own words, sends a message to every young woman in this country that we are on their side. One on Stella Creasy. Mm. More sad news from Brazil after the catastrophic fire at its National Museum, this time coming from BirdLife International, which announced that the beautiful Spix macaw is now extinct in the wild. The blue bird, one of eight species confirmed disappeared in the report, was the subject of the 2011 kids' film Rio. Don't ask me. <laughs> it's not Disney. I've got, not got time for other kids' films too. Stephen Butchart, BirdLife's chief scientist and the paper's lead author, said, 90% of bird extinctions in recent centuries have been species on islands. However, our results confirm there is a growing wave of extinction sweeping across the continents, driven mainly by habitat loss and degradation from unsustainable agriculture and logging. And now, for the sake of balance, here's a quote from some wild-haired loon who doesn't believe that mankind has any impact (laughs) on the planet. Oh, no, wait. 
He can fuck off. <laughs> See, there's how you do it, BBC. Big news last week, if you like. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Vincent Cable. I met him last week. Did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. Did he look like he'd been made old via prosthetics in real life? <laughs> no? <laughs> him and Min Campbell. No comment. Him and Min Campbell both look like they're not real people. <laughs> anyway, back to that big news, eh? Uh, he announced he's going to stand down as the leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. Remember them? Yeah, just about. Yeah. Cable, who is third on Google's uh, results list after you start searching Vince. And that's after Vincent E. Senders, a man whose whereabouts you're likely to be more curious about. Was he shot? Is he coming back to look after Kim? And what did happen in Richard Blackwood's contract negotiations? Hannah, you look befuddled. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a slightly more nuanced departure that was announced. Cable said he would stand down once Brexit is resolved or stopped. So much like a simply read farewell tour, it's more like a long kiss goodbye and what a kiss, eh? His plan in the meantime, a period of around 25 years, one assumes, is to transform the Liberal Democrats into a movement for moderates, sweeping up an anticipated wave of Labour defections. Let's hope so if he wants to extend the leadership talent pool to more than 11 people. (laughs) How much of what Donald Trump says is actually true? Do you want to guess, Jen? Um, 12%. 12%. Well, according to a tweet by fact-checking website PolitiFact this week, since 2011, just 5% of what comes out of the fluff-haired Gibbon's mouth can be deemed factual. Fake news! <laughs> Another 12% of statements were deemed to be Mostly true. Mostly true. (laughs) With the rest falling somewhere between half true and full-on pants on fire. That's PolitiFact's terminology, by the way, and conveniently also mine. On the same day, the man inexplicably still the President of the United States was talking about the truth himself, tweeting, quote, Isn't it a shame that someone can write an article or book, totally make up stories, and form a picture of a person that is literally the exact opposite of the fact? (laughs) and get away with it without retribution or cost. Don't know why Washington politicians don't change the libel laws. It's believed that the surprisingly moderate and well-punctuated tweet was in reference to Watergate (laughs) legend Bob Woodward's upcoming book about the Trump presidency, Creep Throat. (laughs) No, really, it's called Fear, colon, Trump in the White House. But all the talk of totally made-up stories forming a picture of a person that is literally the exact opposite of fact reminds me that Ivanka Trump's Working Women is available in all good bookshops. <laughs> Want a bit of good news? Yes, please. Yes, please. One of the country's leading astronomers has won a major science prize and given the £2.3 million award to help other women. Hey! Hooray! Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell... They just love a woman who has so many titles that you're not sure which one takes precedence. Received a breakthrough prize for the discovery of radio pulsars and in recognition of her scientific leadership. The money will go to fund women, underrepresented ethnic minority and refugee students to become physics researchers. Professor Bell Burnell said, quote, I don't want or need the money myself. And it seemed to me that this was perhaps the best use I could put it to. What a tremendous human being. Lovely stuff. I sort of feel like I should give a little shout out to a man now. I'm sorry. 
Wilfried Zaha, Crystal Palace player, stumped up the cash to fund the Crystal Palace women's team after they were under threat of of, of not, basically. Good so well, well done, Wilf. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Welcome to that part of the week where we wonder, where has your hand been before moving train carriages in outrage at the latent sexism among our fellow men? Worst thing about your commute to work, Hannah, and by commute I mean your journey here today because we don't really commute, do we? Um, Spent an hour in a stranger's armpit or potentially worse? Inexplicable delay? All of these things. Are you even here? Are you sure your train wasn't (laughs) cancelled? I have had a fight at a train station today about parking, though. So, yeah. What? Who? What's? What train company is it? Name and shame them. Greater Anglia. Right. I I hate them too. No, no. Hang on. Seems more likely that the sight of a woman applying some mascara would be the thing to tip you over the edge, right? Come on, Jen. You know I got a weak stomach. That's right. According to a BBC News article last week, the application of makeup by fellow commuters was deemed a major source of irritation mm-hmm. to readers who'd actually bothered to contact the corporation about it. One of those included Michael, 59. Of course and, he is. Yeah, <laughs> and Michael really needs to take a long, hard look at himself, frankly. Um, who had actually moved carriages in the face of such behaviour. Apparently, he'd occasionally try the old stare at them until they get embarrassed. No, really, embarrassed, that's what he said. But when that didn't happen, he'd been forced to remove himself from the situation. After all, it's something for someone's private space, he said. Do you think picking your nose and eating retrieved bogeys is something for public consumption, Mike? How about putting your hand fully down the front of your trousers and having a thorough rummage, then, to my horror, grabbing the handrail? These are things I have seen dudes do on the tube fairly frequently. But Mike was not alone here in his complaint against birds. Gerard, 60, wondered why women couldn't just get up earlier and do the job at home. And there's a simple answer to that, Gerard. It's because women like sleeping too. Who knew? (laughs) And they've probably been up half the night looking after your fucking kids. (laughs) Now, I've got an idea about how to deal with this troubling epidemic that's blighting the journeys of pricks across the nation, nay, world. How about you stop valuing us on our beauty and youth above all other characteristics and accept our butters' faces like we do yours and we'll stop wasting our time and money on a multi-billion pound industry that exists largely to make us feel shit about ourselves and then we can crack on with doing some of the social, political and economic things that you've been doing quite badly. Sorry, have you finished, Jen? I was just scratching my crutch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm done. We're done. Agreed. (laughs) Hello, Mickey here. I'm at the Glasgow Women's Library in, well, Glasgow, with the excellently named Gabrielle Macbeth. Hi, Gabrielle. (laughs) Hello, Mickey. Thanks for coming to see us. Thanks for having me. What an amazing building and concept and library, museum. It's a bit of all sorts, isn't it? Yeah, our name, Glasgow Women's Library, doesn't really sum up everything that, that we do. Because we are based in Glasgow, but we work across Scotland. Um, we're not just a library as well. We're the only accredited museum to women's history in the whole of the UK. And also in archives, we collect materials about women's history and women's lives. 
in all of their diversity. And what is your role at the library? I'm the volunteer coordinator, so I have the really fun job of involving about 80 volunteers in everything that we do. So we have women just come and, and help out for a few hours a week, and I support them and make sure they're doing something they really enjoy and are getting loads from it. That's the, that's the aim. I've seen the badge board, and it's a big job because there are loads of them. <laughs> there are, yeah. Yeah, we're really lucky. We don't do much recruitment. We have this like constant demand for women to yeah, who want to get involved. Can you tell us a little bit about how the award-nominated museum, I might mm, add, yeah. got started, why and how and when? So it goes back to the late 80s when it was announced that Glasgow was going to be the European city of culture. Oh, yeah. Um, so Glasgow was it in 1990. And a group of women got together and they really wanted to make sure that women's contributions to culture were going to be visible during that year where people were visiting from all over, really, to come and see Glasgow and what it had to offer. Mm -hmm. And there was a real risk that it was going to be about white men with beards, mainly. Do they um, still exist? <laughs> the white men with They're beards. They're hanging around, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, beards are back. Uh, yeah, and white men have never been away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my colleague's like, yeah, it was before beards were like the kind of trendy cool beard. But yeah, so my colleagues were just really, well, colleagues at that time, they were all volunteers, but just like, we've got to do something to showcase women's contributions to culture. So they created an organisation called Women in Profile, and they put on a programme of activities during the year of culture. And the focus then was really about highlighting women's contributions to culture, be them artists or writers, but also bringing that offer to a wider audience. A lot was happening in the city centre, but Glasgow was and still is one of the most deprived or has the biggest deprivation in Scotland. So lots of people were not going to necessarily be taking part in what was going on. So one of the first projects was out in Castle Milk um, and a group of women took over this tenement building and put on loads of activities for women and their children over the summer and really tried to kind of bring that culture to a wider audience and that's something that we still feel passionately about today. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that was the late 80s, 1990, and then after that year of culture kind of ended, it was like, right, what do we do next? There was nothing else in Scotland that had that real aim of championing women's contributions to culture. So inspired by other women's libraries, and mainly in Germany, I believe, the first women's library opened in Glasgow. And at that point, it was one room staffed entirely by volunteers, and it's kind of grown from there, really, really humble humble origins because all the books are donated as well aren't they mm, yeah so some of them will have been donated 27 years ago and that's yeah that's how it's been built women reading stuff or coming across stuff and saying oh this is great i want other women to read this so still to this day we do not have a budget for buying any books mm. which seems a bit crackers for a library really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there's method in the madness because it means that our books are hopefully reflective of really different interests and of the richness of women's experiences and diversity of women's experiences. Gabby very kindly took me for a tour around this amazing building and made me a cup of tea. She's great. <laughs> and you were saying that it's only recently that you've got an archivist and a curator. Mm. So how did it work before that and why did you decide to bring those roles in? We named ourselves back in 1991, so when, it, when we first opened, we did call ourselves Glasgow Women's Library, Scotland's Artists and Writers Archive. My colleague Adele, who was 
involved at the time says we had no idea really what an archive was, but there was this idea of like preserving women's history and yeah. making that visible so that other women could be inspired by that. But we just didn't have the funding. It was very like it's just like women coming together and and doing it. And it wasn't until uh, 2005 that we had our first librarian. So the council provided some funding for for that post, and we st- we still have a librarian, but she is part time, and our archivist is part time, and our museum curator is part time. Yeah, as you mentioned, we were nominated for this Museum of the Year award, and I just think, wow, like we were up for that award alongside the Tate and Eyes oh and the Postal Museum and the Brooklyn's Museum and the Ferrens in Hull. So, you know, all just really, really Huge. excellent, yeah, really high caliber well, <laughs> competitors. funded competitors as yeah, well. Yeah, I think in, yeah, in different ways. There we were with our part-time museum curator and a, a kind of a different model of museum, really. You'll have seen from walking around, we don't have a huge amount of materials on display. We are thinking about how we can do that, but we're limited with space. And also, we always have this kind of conflict of like, well, who are we to decide what goes on display? How do we capture the huge amount of history there is and the huge diversity in women's experiences in permanent displays? Like, yeah. How can we tell the history of women? <laughs> and so is that nah, kind forget of... about them, they're not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> yeah. It's something that we're kind of, yeah, thinking about and we will continue to think about and explore but we do these amazing sessions called open archive and museum sessions where we get a collection out and invite people to kind of come and, and rummage with clean hands like have a look at things and and, and see the door them. with the hand sanitizer <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a very very strict testing of hands that gives people like really I suppose, easy access to the materials. And we're always balancing that. Need to conserve and look after the materials for so that they last for as long as possible, yeah. but also making them really accessible to people because what's the point in having stuff in stores that no one sees? And, of course, people aren't just donating books. You get all sorts of stuff donated to you. Yeah. We were just in the archives and we found an old Jackie annual <laughs> and we did the quiz and it has not changed from what you read in, like, Company or Glamour anymore. And uh, one of the questions was whether we wanted a man who was authoritative. Is that what we look for in a man? (sighs) (laughs) Well, yes. So if you're out there and you're listening, please do get in touch. What's the most interesting thing? What sparked your interest that you've had donated? I've loved diaries from women. I think it's because I'm basically a really nosy person who isn't, <laughs> who doesn't want to like read. She's been through else's. my handbag. <laughs> I'm not pleased about it. <laughs> but yeah, who doesn't want to read like someone else's diaries? Yeah, no. <laughs> sure. You're looking at me blankly. Yeah, I'm not going to validate this kind of intrusive behaviour. <laughs> so these diaries have been donated to us, so I feel like you've yeah, been given it's all permission. above board. It's all yeah. above board. We got a diary in recently. It kind of seemed to appear at the front desk, and I was like, "Oh, what's this?" And it was written in 1938 by a young woman who lived in in Glasgow. But she'd written. She was sound like she was. Well, I don't think she was married. She was maybe like kind of late teens, early twenties, still living with her parents. And this young woman's attitude comes through so strongly she moans about having to see her friends she moans that the weather's this way she moans that she doesn't have enough to do when in fact her social life is like ridiculous <laughs> and it's fascinating it's like a snapshot not only of like what life was like for her in 1938 but also this yeah this this woman's like personality comes through and i love those kind of like really personal stories um yeah she was just kind of an ordinary woman 
and and we have this like record of her of that one year of her life. Amazing that you now know backwards. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of our volunteers then. She came across it because I was wittering on about it. She's like, oh, brilliant, I'll transcribe it. So she's typed it all up. And then she went into detective work and found, like, the streets that she refers to and the places that, um, yeah, she visits and stuff like that. So we've kind of built this little story about this woman. That's, that's such fascinating bits of history that usually we, well, or her story in this case, mm. which usually we don't get to hear mm. because it's not about a huge event, but it gives you a much better snapshot of what life was like, particularly, again, not charted, not documented, the lives of ordinary women mm. just aren't there. So it is yeah. fascinating. I wasn't a big history fan at school, and I think some of it probably was because I wasn't really learning about anything that was relevant to me. History at school is so dry. It's just yeah. facts and men fighting and each is, other. Yeah, it is quite bloke-heavy. It's very bloke-heavy. <laughs> um, so, and I've had, yeah, like, other ones have said like, stuff like that. I, like, I didn't know I was into history, but now I read about, like, these women. I'm like, we're doing lots of round suffragettes because the centenary of women voting for the first time. And, yeah, it's like, like these ordinary women's lives and that we can relate to those in some ways. It, makes, it does just bring it, bring it to life, so... I think we try, in lots of what we do, is like turn learning into something that's really, really pleasurable. And I think part of that is learning about people who we can relate to. Absolutely, um, which takes us neatly onto mm. the travelling flag. Because mm. your award nomination, you designed a flag that, well, you tell me, and tell me the tagline on the flag. So, I think it's a really beautiful flag, and it flies at the moment outside our building, and it says, Glasgow Women's Library, it's for me, it's my museum. This was our still is, I suppose, our tagline for during our, um, the period of our nomination in the run-up to the Museum of the Year Award announcement. We wanted to do some kind of public engagement, so we wanted to kind of heighten our profile, but also trying to distill what it was about our nomination that was different from others, because we are called Glasgow Women's Library, so unlike all of the other nominees, we're not like straightforward museum. Yeah, so we kind of came up with this idea, like, it's for me, it's my museum, and we accompanying the flags we got loads of people doing little videos about why women's library is for me it's my museum so people kind of saying well because i have donated materials and they're in the store and i see my history here or i came here and i found materials that reflect an aspect of my identity or my life and that's why i feel it's for me we, we didn't win. <laughs> That's the kind of fools. Uh, but we like to joke that we kind of won social media because the amount of support was incredible. And I think the it's for me is so important because what you've created, what Glasgow Women's Library has created, is a, a place and a space that is incredibly welcoming. And men are allowed in too, but it's just incredibly welcoming for everyone. And just chatting to some of the volunteers, they mm. feel like they've found somewhere where they can just be themselves. You must meet a lot of different personalities and different women from different backgrounds as well. Is it somewhere that has got a real community feel? Mm. Yes, I mean, it's hugely important for us that the library feels that it, it does belong to, to everyone. I think you've done an amazing job. 
and to draw more <laughs> people you. in, you run a series of events. And yeah, I think do. your autumn programme will be starting September time, is that correct? Yes, so we have three programmes a year. So this is the autumn, winter. So we do creative writing in every programme. We have a great group called the Story Cafe, which we run really regularly as well, where on a Thursday at lunchtime, our librarian reads stories out loud. Do you get to go lunch. to sleep on the carpet in that front of That can her? happen. Oh, God. <laughs> can be catnapping. That sounds amazing. Yeah. But there's tea and sandwiches and all of that and Wendy's lovely lovely reading and then sometimes we have authors come and read their work so they're they're called the Story Cafe Special so there's regular stuff like that but then we always have things that are totally unique to that programme we have warm welcome Saturdays I thought if people want to kind of come and check us out then you can come on a Saturday afternoon the first Saturday of the month that's not to say that other Saturdays are not warm and welcoming they were really fucking frosty with me when I went in on a Friday (laughs) frosty Fridays I like it <laughs> but yeah, come any time because you'll always get a warm welcome. We make tea for everyone. Kind of I reckon Hannah Dunleavy is going to be on a train any moment now. <laughs> she, she loves tea, oh, books, history, and napping. Where can people find out more about the library in general and about the events that you've got coming up? So you can always come in and we'll tell you more and we'll give you a tour and, we'll and a cup of tea and a cup of tea and we'll tailor what we tell you depending on what you're interested in. But there's also the website which has got tons of information, which is womenslibrary.org.uk and we're really active on social media. So if anyone's into Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or all of the social medias, what's your Twitter uh, handle? At Women's Library. Okay, keep it simple. Thank you so much for chatting to us, Gabby. Thank you very much for coming and visiting us. Hi, we're joined today by Stella Duffy, writer and co-creator of Fun Palaces. Thanks for being here, Stella. Hello. So, Fun Palaces returns to a weekend of culture for all, by all. Yep. Returns around the world on the 6th and the 7th, around the world, around the UK. Well, the world and the UK. We've got um, Norway, uh, Australia, New Zealand, yes. Oh, in error, I was correct. No, you were totally right. In fact, there have been Fun Palaces in Germany, Sweden, Iceland. Oh, I'll forget them all now. Anyway, 14 nations. Wow. Yeah. That's the 6th and the 7th of October. Perhaps the easiest place to start is if you tell us what a fun palace <laughs> yes, is. Please. Okay. Well, now let's do this, Jen. Mm-hmm. Hannah, tell me what's something that either of you are passionate about, which isn't to do with Standard Issue, which isn't to do with the podcast, which isn't to do with anything that we're here for. Surfing, um, swimming, uh, watercolours. I like boxing. Fantastic. Okay, so in uh, your local fun palace, Jen, Mm -hmm. what you might be able to offer, which may not be anything to do with what you do for your living or what people know you for, is a few tips around boxing. Okay. Uh, This is the kind of boxing I do. This is the kind of, um, you know... a swift one to an uppercut or whatever that you could share with someone else. Mm-hmm. So what a fun palace is, is it's asking people to bring their own passions, their own enthusiasm and do it locally, sharing with each other what they care about. Well, that's bloody lovely, isn't we it? We think so too. Hannah, what's yours? I like a bit of theatre. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so um, now... One thing we say about fun palaces is we're really not interested in performances or lectures. It's got to be interactive, okay? So is there something about theatre? Do you mean as a practitioner, as a performer, as a writer, as an audience member? Well, I would say, I mean, I don't act, but yeah, I've had a crack at writing. Fantastic. And I certainly like watching. Okay, good. All right, so because we like fun palaces to be participative, and I'll explain why in a moment, 
what I would consider would be, could we get three people who are dying to give their best Shakespearean sonnet that they could give you a private audience locally with their best Shakespearean sonnet or the local writing group who've got five-minute pieces that they might want to share or even better still, somebody who wants to help people write five-minute pieces. Because here's the key. If I am to sit, and I say this as a writer, I say this as a theatre maker, I say this as somebody who has worked in traditional arts for 35 years, and I know damn well we've been paying lip service to giving access to everyone for decades. We're giving access to some people, and we're not giving access to every... We're giving people access to consume, not to create. And Fun Palaces is about creating. And also, if we share a physical skill with each other, instead of asking strangers who live in the same area, who maybe are in the same estate or the same street or the, their kids go to the same school, instead of asking them, go and become friends. That's the way we get to community. Go and talk to a stranger. It's really hard, right? But if you're to teach me, Jen, a little bit of boxing, we start doing something physically together if you, Hannah, share with me a little bit about writing, we start doing something physically because when I teach writing, I teach that it's a physical activity, right? Because you've got to yeah. use your body. You've got to use yourself. When we're doing something physically together, we begin to make a connection that is different to telling strangers to sit down and have a chat. And that way we use art, science, craft, tech, heritage, digital and sport all together as a catalyst for community. That sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Fun Palaces is. And the key is it's run by local people for local people. And yes, there are some great big shiny venues getting involved. Uh, Royal Maritime Museum at Greenwich, the RSC in Stratford, the National Gallery of Ireland. Um, You know, so lovely shiny buildings and they're really welcome. But shiny buildings find it really hard to genuinely open themselves up to their local Mm. community. You Mm. know, they're not very practiced in it. So we're giving them some help in that and helping them understand that, you know what, maybe it'll be a bit messier than normal. You know, Sheffield Theatres has been brilliant at this. Um, You know, they're really good at giving over their foyer space, their cafe space, not to say, come in, buy a ticket, sit down in the stalls and shut up and don't let your children make a mess. Mm. Um, None of that. It's about letting people in to to lead themselves. And this way we see people stepping up in their community who didn't think they could. We see people giving to their community who didn't think they could. And for me, as somebody, you know, I'm the youngest of seven kids from a council estate in southeast London, grew up in a timber town in New Zealand. I see people like me saying, oh, I can lead. I'm allowed to do things. I don't have to wait for somebody you know, not to sound like Michael Gove about experts, really not. But I don't have to wait to, for somebody who's got a title in this job to lead it for me. I don't need permission. Exactly. Yeah. It's absolutely. And people, you know, last year, 64% of fun palaces, and we're 90% outside London, which is astonishing that is incredible. for a cultural organisation. Yeah, um, last year, and also we're only three people running it two days wow. each a week, right? Yeah. Last year, 64% of fun palaces in, um, had people who are minority ethnic in their leadership groups. Um, 11% are fun palaces lead makers they're the the lead people who would sign up with us um, identify as having a disability or a health condition so a lot of the people who aren't normally perceived to be leading in the current state of Brexit Britain thank you very much are the people who are getting a chance to step up I was taking a look at some of the figures. When you started this in 2013... Yes, accidentally. (laughs) You had 138 fun palaces and 40,000 participants. And last year, you had 362 and 126,000 participants. Yep, and 
I checked just before I came out so I could tell you on the map at the moment, I think there's 304. Talking about the um, international side, the region of Bergen and Norway has put us into their cultural strategy for the next 10 years. Because they see so that... You're never getting an October off. <laughs> so, but what's really interesting, because they said to us, this looks good. And, you know, I mean, I think we in Britain think about the Scandinavian nations as being really inclusive and, you know, much more open to, to other people coming in. And the, one of the blokes I spoke to from Bergen, he said... We're really good at welcoming in asylum seekers and refugees, but we're not very good at working with them. Mm-hmm. So we let them come in and we give them places, pro- you know, a damn sight better than us, putting them all in, in Yarlswood. But, but we only give them places to live. We're not yeah. connecting with them. And so he said, we could use fun palaces to connect with communities we don't normally connect with. And that's what, why, I mean, you know, this is only their first year. We have no yeah. idea how it'll go. But they're starting to use it for that. And to me, that's so thrilling because... That's why I came into the arts. You know, I thought it was going to reach everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Now, somebody's sitting listening to this and they feel enthused. And to yeah. be honest, Ella, I don't know how they can't feel enthused <laughs> listening to I'm you. I'm sold. <laughs> Where can I show someone my... How do, people, how do people, A, get involved in... Uh, are you still taking sort of oh, options oh, yeah. for, I, I, uh, we, for we have palaces? Absolutely. So we're on 6th and 7th of October this year. We have had people sign up 10 days beforehand. And we always say, if you wanted to sign up on the day, it would still be fine with us. We might not be quite so good at doing the publicity for you, but we would do our best. We have a website that we have worked very hard, changing it every year based on what people tell us to make it as accessible as possible. That said, sometimes the people who sign up to make fun palaces have never signed up for anything before. They're, they're not the people with a Facebook page. They're not the people with access to the internet in their own home. They, you know, they're going to their local library. Oh, we love libraries. 55% of fun palaces are in libraries, partly because of the people who are using it. The the idiots who say, no one needs the library for the internet. Everyone's got it in their house. Sure, they have, rich person. Absolutely. (laughs) So we've talked people through how to sign up if they've they've rung up and they've said, I don't know how to do this. We've tried to make it as simple as possible. People can sign up without a venue and just give a general address. Just the beginning of a postcode is enough. Um, and then use that as a way to say, look, I'm making a fun palace in, in West Yorkshire in this particular place. Does anyone want to join in with me? Or they might have a venue and want people to come in and do it with them. Um, they'd ask their local library or their local scout hall or their local town hall, who really ought to, in my opinion, be sharing all of that public space. Mm-hmm, right. You know, I mean... The original Fun Palace idea was invented in the 60s by Joan Littlewood, theatre director, Oh What Lovely War, Things Ain't What They Used To Be, Cedric Price, astonishing architect who designed fantastic buildings that were hardly ever built. Richard Rogers, um, designed for the Pompidou Centre of Paris, is based on the original Fun Palace design. Oh, really? Yeah, he, well, he said that, so I'm not accusing building. him of stealing it, and, you know, but he said it in public. But their Fun Palace was never built, and it's, and I think... In a way, it's kind of good because they were trying to build one building and it was going to be for the people of the East End, people who didn't feel they were comfortable going uptown, like my mum wouldn't have from our council estate in Woolwich. They didn't feel like they were comfortable going up to the shiny buildings and they needed something on their doorstep. The thing is, the minute you start building a building, you've got to worry about paying the security staff, which one ought to, (laughs) paying for the heating, making sure the roof doesn't fall down. You start worrying about all those things, not about the people. So Fun Palaces says use the spaces we've got. Use the great spaces. We have empty office space. You know, I started writing. My first book came out in 1994. I started writing when I was house cleaning for rich people. 
you know, and uh, I have to say that was a really good way to get stories. But that's <laughs> just by the by. But, but, you know, look at all those cleaners who are working in shiny office blocks. I have this dream that one day, because of thumb palaces, because I've said it enough times now, there'll be a desk set aside that for their half-hour break, and they only do get a half-hour break, if that, before their half-hour break, someone could go and use a computer. And there's those really cheap uh, memory sticks that don't, you know, that, that cost like a quid or something. Yeah. That, you know, they only hold five megabytes or something. But the person can do some of their writing and plug it in and take their writing away with them and then come back the next day and carry on instead of not having anywhere to write, not having a clean, I might make myself cry now, a clean, <laughs> well-lit space to write. And we've got all of these underused spaces. On the way up the stairs here, yes. you mentioned to me that you've got two books coming out. Oh, no, they're out. So um, last October, um, my paperback with Virago is called The Hidden Room and it was my first crime novel in 12 years and eight books. And um, it's, that was really nice because the crime writing uh, fraternity, sorority people are just lovely. They're, instead of going, well, you left us to go off and be literary, didn't you? They're just really lovely. And they're like, you know, welcome back, Duffy, and about bloody time. And so that's great. And that's, that's um, touch wood. That's been really good uh, for me to, to be welcomed back by these people having written historical and literary fiction in the inter- interim. And then in uh, March, coming out in paperback next March, so this March in hardback, I was asked to write Naya Marsh, was a New Zealand crime writer who was also a theatre director who also lived in London part of the time. Well, I grew up in New Zealand and I'm a crime writer and a theatre maker and a writer of other stuff. So if they'd have asked anyone else to finish the Nio Marsh novel that was started in 1942, I would have been very annoyed. I know. You finished somebody else's novel. So you know, like Sophie Hannah's been doing these Hercule Poirot novels. Nio Marsh had written only 5,000 words of this book that she started during Second World War and then didn't finish. And her um, detective was Inspector Allen and she started writing, I think, if I remember rightly, uh, 1932. And anyway, they had 5,000 words that, of this unfinished book and HarperCollins asked me if I wanted to finish it. And even though I am not a golden age aficionado, even though um, I haven't read it, I hadn't read a Nio Marsh novel since my teens, even though it was one of the most terrifying things in my life because it, it had to be in that style, I said yes because it was far too nice an offer. So that came out in March. And so far, again, touch wood, I've never had this before in my career, but all of the reviews in the press have been really good. All of them. This has never happened. <laughs> What's really interesting is that the reviews from fans have been utterly divided. Understandably, there are the fans who think you should never do this yeah. and it's a terrible thing to do and the fans who are really excited and love that I've done it. And I think that's fine. That's totally fair enough. But what's exciting to me is I've never had all the press reviews be good before. So, yeah, that was really lucky because they might have all hated it too. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that was a challenge. I mean, oh, it was terrifying. I mean, I don't write locked room mysteries. I've never done that. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't do that. So I had to, I immersed myself in her work, but only up to, because she kept writing until she died in 1986, I think. Anyway, she kept writing up until the 80s. I only read the books before this period. I mean, I read all of them. But then when I was doing the research and highlighting things and, you know, ripping bits up and going, that's a great phrase. I can use that again because she's used it in three books. I only did that from the first 10. 
because there are people who are such aficionados that they would have said, no, I'm afraid Inspector Allen didn't start saying, by goodness me, until um, <laughs> the book that came out in October 1968. And they'd be right and I'd be wrong and I would have got it. I would have ruined it. Yeah. I read her autobiography, actually, and that probably helped more than anything to try and write from a framework that she might understand rather than to try and write a stellar aping her yeah which i think would have just come out as pastiche yeah so yeah i mean it's up to other people to say if it's pastiche or not but i've done my best thank you so much for coming in you're very welcome can i find out your website for people to find out more details stelladuffy.blog oh there's two very good new uh, blogs there there's one about childlessness because it's worldwide childlessness week this week so that's gonna i've got quite a lot of stuff around infertility and cancer my two favorite subjects no they're not but um, they are (laughs) they are subjects that have affected me rather a lot and then there's another one about trans inclusion issues uh that um and today interestingly on twitter they're both getting about the same amount of traction which I forgot. And they're such different demographics of readers. So I'm interested in that. And then thumbpalaces.co.uk. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you. Oh, hi. Mickey here. You've probably noticed that one of our current sponsors is Clarins. That's right. Clarins of skincare, facials, and now body massage fame. They've asked us to tell you how we chill out. That splashing you can hear, I'm in the tub. A warm, bubble-filled, relaxing bath. Mmm, soapy. Don't panic. I'm not at all. I am fully dressed, right down to the socks that make me look like an actual tiger. Arr! Oh, wait, I've made it weird again, haven't I? Se- sexy weird? Se- sexy weird? Nope, just weird. Great. So, uh, now I've got you all tense, I'm going to share a few ways that I relax. Maybe they can help you. I am not great at it, in all honesty. That is not to say that I can't lie like a slug on my sofa and binge Netflix with Clarky Cat contentedly purring on my chest and a share bag of crisps by my side. I can, I will, and I do. But for me, there is always a nagging guilt attached to that way of spending time. Like I should be doing something else. Working, tidying, phoning my mum, sending some emails. My brain doesn't think that I am allowed downtime. And that is because my brain is a bit of a busy prick. The more I want to switch off, the louder it buzzes. Did you reply to the boss? Have you got a birthday card for your brother? How many monkeys is too many monkeys? Important chisel. Uh, Also, a swarm. A swarm of monkeys is too many monkeys. And so, like Jen, I tend to turn to more active ways of relaxing. I go to a lot of gigs, particularly obscenely loud rock and roll type affairs, because the soothing power of music doesn't mean you have to listen to whales at it or the magical sound of a waterfall at sunrise. Obviously, slow classical tunes are more likely to get you into a zen state than, say, Guns N' Roses, Father John Misty, or, most recently, We Are Scientists in a Shed in Huddersfield. Lovely stuff. But listening to music is a distraction from the daily niggles and can even help with the big bads because it means that you're giving your brain a much needed bit of space. Listening to music also releases endorphins, which as well as giving you that giddy kipper feeling they're so famous for, quell anxiety, ease pain and stabilise the immune system. The clever little buggers. Throw in the kind of moves that Teabag can only dream of and I am getting a dopamine rush to boot. And yeah, yeah, I know Jen's are sporty spice, but exercise-wise, running works for me. Once I get into a rhythm, keeping my pace sort of works like a metronome, which I find soothing. And that sweet, sweet dopamine hit when I'm done is the docks. 
I also find something with an element of puzzle solving is good, like sports climbing or trapeze, both of which demand that my busy brain has to focus on the matter at hand or I will land on my face, which, you know, I absolutely do. And after that kind of exercise, because I'd rather poke myself in the eye with a blunt spoon than do yoga or have any kind of stretching routine, a bath usually does the trick in loosening my achy muscles. Turns out I'm onto something. Charlotte Hollands, Clarence's treatment training manager, was kind enough to have a natter with me after she'd given me my massage, and a bath before bed is a smart choice. As we go to sleep, our body temperature naturally rises by one to two degrees, which is when that nicely dopey feeling kicks in. A bath mimics this, so it tells your body it is ready for beddy bye-byes. Genuinely what my mum still calls it. I'm lucky in that getting to sleep is pretty struggle-free for me, but I am really, like, really bad at getting up in the morning. The treatment I chose is called a rise and shine, which focuses on the stomach because, as Charlotte informs me, that's where we hold a lot of our stress and negative emotions, which actually chimes super loud for me as I've got stress-related IBS. And this particular treatment is designed to stimulate and recharge so that you feel early birdish, even if that isn't your natural state. There are a few moves from the massage you can do yourself. Now, Charlotte is some sort of wellness ninja octopus. I did check. She did seem to just have the two arms. But when she was doing her massage thing, the speed, dexterity and amount of hands seemed unfeasible for a human being. And I can't possibly recreate that. However, drawing a figure of eight just below my belly button. Oh, yeah. To find that sweet spot, Charlotte recommends you lie down, already on board with this. About two fingers below your belly button, you should feel a more tense area, which is where you want to concentrate a minute's worth of tummy tickling. I say tickling, but apply quite a deep pressure and you should be able to feel the tension release as you go. Charlotte also did a fair bit of gentle tapping on me, which uh, felt odd. It's not something I've had done before, but odd in a nice way. Apparently, it boosts energy levels. And one place you can focus on this at home is on your sternum, just where your thymus gland sits beneath it. So about halfway between your hollow in your neck and your boobs, uh, depending on how low they are. No judgment. 20 taps is a good number of taps. So that's if you want to boost some energy, which I definitely needed. If falling asleep is your nemesis, Charlotte recommends not eating too late, making that final meal of the day something light so that your body can focus on relaxing rather than processing the food it's just eaten. Also, enforce a digital detox for at least an hour before you sleep. The blue light on computers and smartphones tells your brain to wake up. So if you're just scrolling through Facebook, retweeting and looking at photos of Tom Selleck in waterfalls with sandwiches, that is an excellent use of your time, but it is not going to help you go to sleep. So turn that phone, that laptop, that iPad off. And, you know, pick up a book. Books. Do you remember books? It's good to set a bedtime as well, because the more regulated your body clock is, the more chance of decent uninterrupted sleep. And Charlotte also suggested that I declutter my bedroom so my mind can relax. But she didn't have any ideas where I'd put all my stuff, so I am going to skip that one. I've got to admit, I was pretty sceptical that a massage could have any effect on my morning sluggishness. But Charlotte's Ninja Octopus moves meant that for the two days that followed, I was actually up bright and early and feeling pretty sharp, which never happens. So yeah, I couldn't properly vouch for the rise and shine. So get yourself back into whichever zone you want to be in with a climbing treatment. Beauty sleep to leave you feeling relaxed and rested or rise and shine to recharge and invigorate. Book your treatment at your local Clarins Skin Spa or Beauty Bar online at www.clarins.co.uk forward slash treatments.
Hi, I'm here with award-winning writer John King, creator of Pops Finder, which has just opened uh, the Ambassadors, its West End debut, and I saw it on Friday. It was absolutely terrific. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> I take it you're very happy with it. Yeah, I am. I'm really happy. I mean, it's amazing for it to be on. I'm aware that that's incredibly rare for that to happen, and I still can't quite believe that it's really real, but it is. It's really real. The first thing I've got to say is, when I sat down and watched this, this play feels very post-Brexit. But it was written in 2011? Yeah, I was writing it in 20... No, 2009, 2010, and then it was first staged in 2011. So it was before Brexit. So I suppose that I was just being very prescient. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, take that. Yeah. Take it as a win. I would. By purposes of plot description, what can we say about Foxfinder without giving much away? We can say that Foxfinder is set in a version of England where everybody blames foxes for things that go wrong in the way that we used to blame witches in the Middle Ages. And farms are under government control because we're suffering from food shortages. And the government send a Foxfinder, who's a young man, to a farm to find out why they aren't providing enough food. So it's kind of... Yeah, I won't say anything else. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> that's that, probably enough. Kind of has that, the food shortages, the, the recrimination and blame. Like I say, it feels really, really post-Brexit, which I suppose, is, is that a blessing or is that a curse? I think it's a blessing. I mean, as we were rehearsing the show, there were a lot of stories about potential food shortages after Brexit and how we were needing to stop our food and medicine. And it did feel weirdly relevant and and kind of like the play was kind of coming to life I don't know I think the the play does feel more you know relevant than now than it did I mean I think it felt quite relevant then but at the time the political landscape was slightly different and I think now there's a lot in the play which is about truth and what truth is and that all feels a lot sharper now as well in relation to the kind of post-truth world that we live in it is a small play in terms of it has a cast of four yeah with some quite big ideas. It does cover a lot of stuff. You say about about truth, and you mentioned witch hunts. I have to say, when I went to the bathroom at half... not calling it half-time, are we? I do that every time. Interval. The interval. Um, two Americans behind me in the queue were discussing whether or not they thought it was actually based on fact, yes. on, on a historical event which had <laughs> happened, which I think that's always a, a, a success for a writer when somebody thinks it's so... it, it feels true. Yeah, but but it does feel very much based on on the idea of of witch hunts. Is that something that's interested you for a long time? Yeah, I, I also think people sometimes get a bit confused, thinking, "Well, we know that foxes maybe have there were stories about foxes attacking people in their houses, yeah. so maybe maybe." But all, all of that stuff that came there was a recent spate of, of of stories about foxes, and that was also after I'd written the play, so I wasn't writing it in re- yeah. in reaction to that. I suppose that I did have some works that were kind of in my mind when I was kind of having the idea and I suppose obviously The Crucible was one of them um, and also a Carol Churchill play Vinegar Tom which is about you know women being persecuted for being witches. It's also I think about grief and, and looking for reasons that things happen when sometimes there are no reasons. Yes. Is that something that came naturally that fitted in naturally or was that something you specifically wanted to write about? I suppose that when I was coming up with the idea for Foxfinder, I first created the character of the Foxfinder, and then I needed a very explosive situation for him to walk into, and so I created the most explosive, potentially dramatic situation that I could think of, and so I created a married couple who are 
also grieving and going through this really hard time. And actually, I wrote a little run of plays that had somebody grieving or a grieving character because uh, the next play that I wrote, Cyphers, also had a character who had lost their sister. Only in that play, you saw a dual timeline. So in one part of this play, the, si- the sister was still alive. And I think maybe I'm kind of o- over that now. So I'm trying not to write any <laughs> more plays in which somebody is grieving for somebody that's died. When we were in there, I was really surprised. I mean, it's about grief, about essentially a witch hunt. It's a lot of serious subject matter. There was a lot of laughter mm. from the audience. But it wasn't laughter from comedic situations. Mm. It was laughter largely from some deadpan delivery of some pretty brutal lines, mostly by William, who's in this is played by Iwan Rion. And he's very good at, at deadpan delivery. Yeah. Was that the how you wrote it, or is that how Rachel O'Ritten has directed it? Well, I've seen Foxfinder quite a lot of times because it's been produced in other countries and even when I've seen it in foreign languages I can still tell whether people laugh or yeah. laugh at the same points. And I think a lot of it is to do with the situation is very tense yes. so the characters are in a lot of danger and yet some of the things that w- the character of William are saying are completely insane <laughs> and yet it's very serious. It has to be received very seriously. And I think that the, the clash between very, very serious tension and the absurdity of what you're saying, it makes people laugh yeah and also sometimes people laugh because they feel slightly uncomfortable and they're like i don't quite know what's going on so i have a little bit of a laugh and then sometimes it there are a couple of moments which are just funny yeah well and they always get laughs you are writing a screenplay of this yes i am can you talk about that i can talk about it i've just been doing it literally just now i've run out out of the house like oh god (laughs) from writing it to come i'm very excited by that idea i think it would translate really well yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I have written in my book, Apropos of Nothing, Alex Lawther, because I think he would be an amazing fox finder. I'm just writing the first draft, yeah. so I've got, um, I'm working with a film company and we, we have funding um, to do the development for me to write the script coming from the BFI, so it's, it's still quite early in the process. It's going okay, I think, at the moment, yeah, you know, I've, I've got a long way to go, but yeah, we'll get there. How have you found writing a screenplay as opposed to writing a play for the stage? Well, this is my maybe second or third feature script that I've written. I also wrote a short film, and it is very different. I think one of the main differences is that in theatre, you you write very minimal stage directions. You know, you, you write there in the kitchen, you know, he comes in, then you do the lines... You, you don't write what the person looks like, what their face yeah. is doing, and you don't write anything. You don't write about their emotions and, and those things. And it's quite different trying to get your head around the fact that if it's something important and the audience sees it in a film, you have to write it down. I mean, it sounds really basic, yeah. but that is one of the most basic differences. And also, in, in film, you always end up with way too much talking. And I think particularly for me, coming out of writing plays, the first thing that happens in my, in my first drafts is that there's loads of talking. And then I have to kind of like cut loads of it yeah. out. Uh, yeah. Are you are you expanding, or is it or is it remaining on those four core characters? I am expanding it a bit, but I'm trying to remain to keep the focus. But we are kind of expanding slightly um, because we think we think it can take that, and we want it to kind of elevate yeah. it slightly rather than just keeping it just on the farm. I mean, there's a whole world out there, isn't yes. there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I ask? In, in 2015, you you did an adaptation of Brave New World. Yes, I so, did. So that's like another dystopia. Yeah. You. Is that a point of interest or is that a coincidence? I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that I got that job because of Foxfinder. <laughs> in fact, I'm sure that that's why. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I mean, I've written a couple of dystopias. I wrote, I've written another play, another, well, another two plays, and then I'm doing. A, I've got a National Theatre Connections play that will be being produced by various school co- groups around the country next year, and that's also very slightly into the future, so it has a kind of dystopian element. And so, yeah, I think it is. It is an interest. It's not something that I kind of deliberately set out to do. It's just kind of happened, and obviously, I do do lots of other things as well. And I've got another screen project that I'm working on, which is definitely not a dystopia and is actually a period piece. Very, very different. But yeah, I think, I mean, dystopia is great just because when you take that step away from our reality, it just gives you the freedom to create your own world. Yeah. And that can be really liberating and exciting for a yeah. writer. I, I love dystopia. It's, mm. I mean, obviously, it's like from a, from a reader or from a viewer's point of view. I mean, you always come away with a slight terrifying fear that that's what you're rolling inevitably towards. But I think sometimes when you look back retrospectively at dystopias that you could you could laugh off and you could say, you know, look at something like Soylent Green and yeah. laugh and say, you know, how ridiculous that they thought that's what the future was. There are elements in it yeah. that are actually quite close to the truth. Again, that's about yeah, future yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't it? The Foxfinder is on until Saturday, January the 5th. It is yeah. only on a limited run, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Now, you said it was an achievement to get yeah. something into the theatre. What do you mean by that? Well, it's an achievement to get a play produced at all. And it's also an achievement to have a play on in the West End, definitely. And it, we've been trying to get this West End production together to happen for about, for at least seven years. Wow. They've had, they've, so Bill Kenwright has had the option in the play for that long and has been, you know, has been every year has been kind of extending it and every year has been saying to me, you know, we're gonna, it's going to happen and, and trying to make it happen and, and needing to get the various elements to be right and to come together. So finally it's actually real after all those years of thinking that it wasn't real. So I still feel vaguely like it's not real. I mean, I yeah. can't believe I'm actually sitting here now talking to you about it. Yeah. To me, I look at it and I think, that's a no-brainer. That should be on. What, what, what sort of barriers is it? Is it? Are we talking financial barriers? or I mean, let's talk about the fact that being a woman and getting a play on is a barrier. Yeah, I mean, it, in terms of getting a play on the West End, it, it, it's commercial theatre, so it's, mu- it's money. You know, there's, there's a lot of money involved, so that's obviously a really huge yeah. thing. It's a very different thing to getting a play produced in the subsidised sector. But it's very, very hard to get a, pr- a play produced in the subsidised sector as well. And it's, yeah, it's, it's even harder for women. There were some statistics out recently that showed that it's still shockingly bad for female living playwrights to get work produced um, in this country. So there is a problem there. So do you have any ideas on what, what that problem, where it stems from? We spoke to Lisa Holsworth, who's from the Writers Guild of um, Great Britain, about television, yeah. getting women on television. She said the problem most categorically isn't the audience. The audience responds unbelievably well to things written by women. I mean, sometimes they don't even realise it's a thing written by a woman. That the, the problem yeah. is programmers who who don't give women a chance on writing a certain sort of television. Do you, do you think it's the same in theatre? I can only assume that it is. I mean, that in theatre there are some people who are the gatekeepers. They're the people that are in charge of the companies and the people that are in charge of the venues and ultimately it's those people who choose what goes on so we're talking about directors and artistic directors and producers and you know the boards of theatres I suppose really so there must be a kind of like unconscious bias working in some way I mean I also teach playwriting and I've done it for years and 
across the board when I've taught a class it's usually been 70% female if not more you know like sometimes it's 80% female or sometimes when I'm teaching in schools it's all all women all, all young women and so I find it Kind of, there's obviously something going on because there are all these women who want to write plays and who kind of start out writing plays, learning how to write plays. And then when you go out into the world, you kind of go, oh, I see that that hasn't really kind of made it through. And yeah. I think there are all sorts of reasons why, you know, I, I'm not like an expert. But, yeah, it makes me a little bit angry, quite angry, <laughs> Re- really angry. Good <laughs> so, so what female playwrights should we be looking out for? Well, my God, there's so many. I mean, my kind of, like, one of my legendary heroes, obviously, is Carol Churchill, who is brilliant and who I love, and there's a big kind of, you know, hero influence on me. And then there are just so many great women out there. There's Lucy Kirkwood, Lucy Preble, the two Lucys. Don't get them confused. Morgan Lloyd Malcolm, who just did Amelia, and just so many. We were up in Edinburgh, and uh, obviously we only interview women. And we saw, I say obviously, and you might not know that, our listeners will, but we we saw a lot of, like, one-woman shows mm. there. So, like you say, that that it's not that people aren't writing them, but how many of those will they ever manage to, to, to transfer over to be seen or to go on tour? Yeah. It's quite disappointing. But, yeah, I mean, I have seen some terrific stuff written by women this year. So Monica Dolan, I saw her in the base at the, the Shepherd's Bush, um... Theatre and I thought was absolutely just tremendous. That only had a, quite a limited run. I think it was only on for a yeah. few weeks. So there is a problem with female playwrights being offered shorter runs in smaller spaces. Yeah. So on the surface it looks as if there there's lots of women, but actually when you look underneath you realise it's not so great and also there are a lot of American women being produced over here, which is great for them, but it's not so great for us, the yeah. British women. And also, if you're not white, it's obviously even worse. Like, yeah. the statistics are even worse, it's even harder. So I've been kind of kicking around the industry for a while now, you know, and um, I'd like to say, yeah, things are improving, but it still feels like there's a lot of work to do, and it seems still seems like it's taking a long time, you know, too long really I can't see really why I'm not sure that I believe the kind of reasons that are being given yeah. necessarily it, yeah. it's, it's like surely it can't take that long really if you commission a bunch of writers now and ask them to write plays in two years you'd have a bunch of new plays by women that you could be looking at to put on yeah so to I mean obviously I know that you people need to have the money to do yeah. that but I think a lot of it's because it's it's every so often like everybody has to hark back to we have to have a, a Shakespeare on this year we have to have a whatever and they are all men so yeah the of, classical canon yeah. is is very male and that is that is one of the things you know yeah. you kind of go we've got some we've got a Shakespeare we've got these classical plays and they're all kind of men but you know if you keep telling the same stories over and over again you just don't move things forward i don't i don't know i mean also when there are new versions of classic plays being done or classic or or big stage adaptations they yeah. often most of the time they go to men as well those adaptations yeah. or new versions so that's also an area where there could be improvement yeah. for sure well on that note in a couple of weeks i'm in dublin and i'm going to see hamlet who is being played by ruth negger great which will be brilliant oh, okay be great yeah be brilliant i think maxine Pete was hamlet a couple of years ago as well yeah yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. So what's up next for you, Dawn? What's the next thing to look out for? 
the next thing to look out for I mean I'm so I'm still working on the Foxfinder film adaptation yeah. and then I'm working on another screen project and so the next thing that I'm have that I'll have on stage will be this National Theatre Connections play which will be next year being produced by various youth theatre groups all around the country um, and that's called Salt Okay. And it's about a bunch of young people on a ship sailing away and it kind of has a dystopian thing going on I'm in I'm in <laughs> yeah Thank you so much. It's been really Great. interesting. Thanks. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we call bullshit on thieves and in doing so inexplicably divide public opinion as we talk all things women's sport. Now you might be able to hear I've got a bit of a sore throat today and I've got some ranting to do. I think ranting probably sounds a bit better with a with a slightly raspy voice but I don't know, let's see. Later on I'll be chatting to GB Wheelchair Basketball squad member Sophie Patterson about the path to success and how the charity is helping Paralympic stars of the future. But first, of course, my introduction and indeed forthcoming rant refers to Serena Williams. Williams found herself once again the subject of more than just the sports pages this week after controversy at the US Open final. Williams missed out on her second chance this year to take that all-important record-levelling 24th Grand Slam title, which she lost out on to Naomi Osaka and first up. Massive congratulations to the 20-year-old, whose historic victory, she's the first Japanese player ever to win a Grand Slam title, her victory has been completely overlooked in all of the furore. Williams received a code violation for coaching after Patrick Moratoglu made a hand gesture towards her in the second set, which is uh, communication between coaches and players is banned um, during tennis stuff so uh williams denied cheating and demanded an apology from the umpire carlos ramos she's later docked a point for smashing her racket for which she proceeded to lambast the umpire and was penalized by a game williams later called out the penalty as sexist saying male players would have been treated with more leniency and the world lost its shit some denied the double standard, because sure, there's no double standard in a game where men can change their shirt on court, but women can't. Sure, no double standard. Got it. I know we have boobs, but like generally female tennis players are wearing sports bras. Others agreed that men would have been treated with more leniency, but didn't excuse the outburst. Okay, right. Let's be real, as the kids say. Now, tennis players, I'm going to say it, tennis players are pricks, right? They're all at it. I've watched a lot of tennis and this shit is everywhere. It actually makes me wonder why footballers have such a bad reputation. Honestly, like I, f- I feel bad for footballers when I watch tennis players because they are spoilt brats and their behaviour is appalling. Hashtag not all tennis players, right? Hashtag not all tennis players. But a lot of tennis players demonstrate appalling behaviour that would not be considered sportsmanly or sportswomanly or sportspersonly or whatever under any circumstances but and here is the key difference dudes are absolutely treated less harshly when they smash a racket and sure it shouldn't be a race to the bottom as some people have said but that is undeniably sexist the fact that the men are being treated better than the women that's sexist guys and then of course racists gonna hate 
Even the fucking BBC News front page led with angry Williams, right? Meanwhile, cartoonist Mark Knight produced a cartoon for Australia's Herald Sun newspaper that depicted Williams in such a throwback, racist, caricature fashion. Rudyard fucking Kipling would have blushed. I'm not even joking. Oh, and he made victim, in inverted commas, Naomi Osaka whiter, and you can all make of that what you will. There's some debate about this, like, is it racist? Is it sexist? I mean, I, I want to tell you it's sexist, like, it it just is, right? And and to my mind, as a white person, it very much stinks of racism to me as well. But here's the thing, right? If a woman is telling you something is sexist and you are a man, listen to her. Because you don't know. It's her experience. So listen to what she's saying. Similarly, it's not for me to decide what should or shouldn't offend people of colour. But I'm seeing people of colour are offended by this fucking cartoon, right? And so I'm going to listen to them because it's not my area of expertise as a white person. So if they tell me it's offensive, and it very much looks offensive from where I'm standing, I'm going to fucking believe them. So everyone, please, the internet, stop. Listen to what other people are saying. Williams' whole career sends a very clear message to women, and particularly women of colour, She has battled against this shit her entire career, despite being the greatest female, maybe greatest full stop, tennis player of all time. Because Margaret Court's 24 record, right, is kind of... It's before the open era, so it's a different standard. As a black woman in a white man's world, none of this seems to matter. And that sends a very clear, very clear message to black women that it doesn't matter how good you are, you will never be good enough. Well, fuck this shit. I honestly, I honestly don't know how she actually finds the strength to withstand this shit or how she has found the the strength over such a long period of time to withstand this shit. But I am so glad that she does. And, oh, breathe. Just breathe, okay? I'm breathing. And so, on to a more positive note as I segue seamlessly to Sophie Patterson. Hi there, I'm speaking to... GB wheelchair basketball star Sophie Patterson, head of the Path to Success wheelchair basketball tournament, which is happening on the 25th of September at the Olympic Park in London. Sophie, hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's very early and I've got a very sore throat. So Sophie, how did you get into wheelchair basketball? When my mum heard something on the radio about it, I was always sporty as a child and um, before I was disabled. I was into running, I did tennis, football. So she, after hearing something on the radio about it, Googled like my local club and took me along and that's been me ever since. Just fell in love with it. Why was that? Is it Was it the team aspect of it that appealed to you? Or... Yeah, um, I absolutely love being like... For instance, our squad's 14 deep, so you're spending every day with 14 other wonderful people. There's a connection that is absolutely amazing to have. How easy was it to get into wheelchair basketball? Like, How accessible was it when you decided to, to have a go? It was actually it was actually really good, yeah. Um, wheelchair basketball is one of those sports that's open to all 
mm-hmm. all ages, all abilities, like able-bodied people can play it as well. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love that aspect of it because it doesn't matter what where you come from or what your ability is when you're on the court, everyone's equal. And so the aim of the tournament is to is it's a fundraiser basically for the Path to Tokyo 2020 scheme, which aims yes. to give financial support to women who hope to represent GB at the Paralympics. How important is that funding? It's absolutely crucial, especially in disability sport. There's, a, there's quite a lack of funding for athletes. And when you're aiming for something like a Paralympics, uh, you have to put a lot of your time and effort into it. And it makes holding down like a job very difficult at the same time. For me, it's absolutely crucial. Like, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without it. How accessible is disability sport from from a financial perspective? Because I imagine you're going to have potentially specialised kit that is also sure. quite expensive. But there are quite a few charities that help out. But when you're um, pursuing it to elite level, it is it, it's extremely difficult. Like a lot of the time, when you're younger it falls down to what your parents can help you with. Yeah, like wheelchairs, specific wheelchairs, cost quite a lot of money. And then you've got training venues, you've got um, eating right, you've got physio, all that stuff costs quite a lot. It's It can make, make it so difficult. The support that Path to Success give to me and 11 other females is just absolutely amazing without it we wouldn't be able to be where we are in in you know our sports and that's just truly amazing that we have that support since the 2012 games we've actually seen a decrease in participation in disability sport it's actually dropped by 10 percent why do you think that is there's lots and lots of factors as to why people are unable to get into it. I think a lot of the time it is due to funding or mm. lack of education about it. Like when I meet other disabled people, especially um, younger people, I'm always there trying to encourage them to get into sport and that. But really, there's so many financial barriers and physical barriers in terms of travel and transport. You are a regular on the GB senior squad now. What are your ambitions? Yes. What are your ambitions for the future? Um, the ultimate goal is to be to get a gold medal in the Paralympic Games. That's got to be, um, yeah, the you big one. The bar low there then. So. <laughs> okay. Aiming high. So what do Team GB need to do if they're going to compete with the likes of the USA and Germany who sort of tend to dominate in the sport? Well, we've got a really good setup. We up in Sheffield, um, and we all, all of the girls in the squad, we train there full time. There's a lot of hard work and dedication that goes into it. So it would just be keeping up the hard work and believing in ourselves. I think that's our main thing as a squad. After Success Wheelchair Basketball Tournament is on the 25th of September. It's 2pm to 6pm at the Copper Box. What can people expect to see if they show up? It's a really, really fun day where everyone can get involved, um, try wheelchair basketball if they've never tried it before, meet new people. It's a wonderful event. 
and we all look forward to it every year. And with it being a tournament, it's competitive, it's fun, it's, yeah, it's wonderful. So if you're interested in attending or better still sponsoring a team, go and have a look at pathtosuccess.org.uk forward slash path hyphen to hyphen Tokyo hyphen 2020. Sophie, thanks so much for talking to me uh, very early on a Monday morning. (laughs) No problem. That's all from this week's episode of the Standard Issue podcast. Thank you ever so much for joining us. We've had a lovely time as always, and uh, I'm sure you have too. Thanks. Coming up on Sunday, we'll have some chops for you, and they come courtesy of journalist Hazel Davis, who will be talking about hoarding in the wake of the World Health Organization's announcement that it would be classified as a mental disorder uh, for the first time a few weeks ago. Next week, we'll be back with something a little bit different, which will be a recording of this Saturday's show that we are doing for the London Podcast Festival at King's Place in London. It's near King's Cross. It's ever so easy to get to, guys, so please do get there. We'd love to see you. And it's also my birthday on Saturday, so uh, especially nice if you could come and pretend to love me. Thanks. What's happening there? I hear you cry. So basically, it's going to be us, me, Mick, Hannah, alongside the fantastic Newsjack host, Angela Barnes, fantastic wannabe podcast host, Emil Morgan, and the fantastic blogger, speaker, author, wonderful human, Chidera Agaru, who you will have heard, no doubt, on last week's Sunday Chops. She is fantastic, and I'm basically obsessed with her. I want her to adopt me as her weird auntie. Fuck it, let's do it. Why not? I think it is going to be like bare lols, guys, so I'm very excited for it. The following Tuesday, we've got another show, but it's in Cheltenham. We have almost sold out of tickets for this show, and that is going to be Sarah Millican, the boss, not Bruce Springsteen, chatting with the Scummy Mummies and Sally Phillips as part of the Cheltenham Comedy Festival, and that is going to be rad. There's only a few tickets left for that, so you're going to have to be quick if you want one. Otherwise, we're back at the Leicester Square Theatre as of the 25th of September. I'm not. I'll be on holiday. Yeah. But you should go because Nigella Lawson's going to be there, as is Samira Ahmed, as is Jodie Prenger, and also, of course, the boss, Millican. Do it, do it. Get your tickets. Visit www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue should you wish to do that. And you should wish. Also, it's ever so helpful if you could rate or review us on the old iTunes or subscribe. If you haven't already subscribed, what are you waiting for? Why would you ever want to miss the ramblings of a madwoman at the end of a podcast like this? So please do subscribe because it's very helpful for us. It means we get a download, it means we get some cash from the old advertisers and you don't even have to do anything. So please do. Also, you can become a patron of Standard Issue if you so wish to, which means you help support us make excellent stuff for your excellent ears. And it's all just bloody beautiful, isn't it? So if you want to do that, again... Sarah's website is the place to find more information. In the meantime, please do follow us on Twitter. We are at Standard Issue UK. You can follow us individually. I am at Inspira Jen. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Mickey is at Mixter Noonan. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So I've gone on for ages as ever. All that remains for me to say until next time, stay frosty, champs.
standard issue for all women.